Hello, college football fans. Welcome to episode 119 of College Football Throwdown. I'm your co-host, Alex Schmitz, and today I'm joined remotely once again by my dad, Peter Schmitz. Hello, college football fans and Husker fans. Hello, hello, everybody. Yeah, yes, we're back to our usual routine of uh, recording this online after our in-person podcast from last week over the Thanksgiving break. Uh, thankfully, we'll have more in-person podcasts coming up as I'll be coming back home for the holidays this year. Um, so we'll be able to chat about the bowl games and the semifinals and all that fun stuff when we're in the house together. That sounds awesome. Mm-hmm. And for those of you who are listening to us for the first time, we are a father-son duo, a podcast by college football fans for college football fans. And uh, we are here to talk about the conference championship games today, as well as the final playoff rankings, who ended up being in those two semifinal games for the college football playoff, as well as all of the coaching news and news with our favorite team, the Nebraska Cornhuskers, that's happened. You know, these past two, three weeks of college football have been really wild. That's for sure. Absolutely. It's it's just crazy. It's like there is almost a frenetic pace to everything. There's, there's, you know, an instability almost. Right. Well, I, I do kind of wonder, you know, obviously last year was such a weird year with all the COVID restrictions and everything. Do you think some maybe coaching changes that people were thinking about then, but, you know, they didn't want to do it in that year. Now all that stuff's kind of getting released this year. It's like pent up. Right. Yes, I think so. And, and then there's also this whole thing of uh, everybody was talking about, you know, all these sports programs were going to have to be on an austerity program because most of these major universities, because they lost a huge revenue chunk in this past season, because some of them, you, you know, you didn't play as many games. Number one, you didn't, your, your television partners probably didn't give you a full paycheck. And I don't know all the details of what ESPN and, and Fox and all those uh, channels did in terms of uh, making special arrangements for the COVID year last year. You lost all your revenue for attendance, not just in football, but in every sport. So it was a huge drain on every athletic department. Huge, right? And so the thought was austerity. Everybody's going to have to play it lean for a while. And then this year happened. <laughs> yeah. It's like Nebraska is the only one being austere, it seems like. Right. Well, <laughs> we are out of step with everyone else. That's for sure. Well, you know, you know one the other program that seems to have gone with a, a, a little bit of forethought and wisdom is Notre Dame, which we'll get into a little later. But, but before we do that, we need to open a beverage, my That's son. Right. And, uh, you know, uh, you have been drinking a particular beverage that you, uh, like that is from, uh, one of your favorite places on the planet, Japan. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and you gifted me one of those beverages, uh, uh, when we were together, I am going to open that baby and drink it. It's the Sapporo is how you pronounce that, right? Yes. Sapporo? Uh, Sapporo. 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 Yes. Beer. That's how they would All right. say it. All uh, right. And Very I have, good. this is my last one here at home. Okay. I've got my own. So here we go. Or, okay. There we go. It's bottled, so it doesn't open quite the same as a can in terms of noise. But cheers, my son, to the Sapporo. Yes. Cheers. 
Um, the other program I think that was a little bit uh, more austere, as you put it, uh, was yes. who we talked about last week. Florida, uh, Florida right. Gilling, You're Louisiana's right. Billy Napier. Um, I'm not sure how much they paid him, but I'm sure it wasn't the crazy money that we've seen flying around with some of these other guys. Right. And and, and frankly, uh, you know, as I look to, you know, the instability of uh, uh, of the Nebraska coaching situation, I suspect that's the direction we're headed too. Is that that more austere approach? Um, because I just think this is crazy, and I think there's there what's gonna if if schools continue to do this crazy stuff, then politicians are going to get involved even more than they are now, to the point where there's going to be some real outrage from a lot of people who are not necessarily fans of athletics and and college athletics and thinking it's gotten too big for its britches. And they're going to end up losing their tax exempt status. And that is going to be huge for all these programs. So the NCAA needs to have a big time meeting and get all these people to get on the same page. It, they can't tell you, Hey, we've got, we're going to have a salary cap or something or whatever, but they're going to have to get all these presidents from these universities that make up the NCAA and get them on the same page. Cause if they don't, then um, bad things are going to happen to um to the um, circumstances that create college sports as we know it mm-hmm. yep yeah, we were just talking before the podcast about different topics for us to discuss in the off season you know with all the stuff flying around there's definitely plenty to talk about uh but there really is but for now we're going to stay focused on those conference championship games that happened this past weekend um, we gave predictions for a couple of them. Um, the first one I wanted to mention was the uh, Pac-12 championship game. Um, we were discussing there because there's a rematch between Oregon and Utah with Utah having recently beat Oregon and beat them pretty badly in the regular season. But we both kind of thought, okay, uh, typically in that sort of situation where the team with that's perceived to have the better talent gets to rematch against the team that just beat them, right? They'll have, you know, made preparations and be better prepared the next time and kind of take care of business. Um, but it, that uh, logic didn't play out this time. Uh, it ended up being another Utah victory and another pretty dominant one of 38 to 10. Yes. You know, uh, I would say and uh, that Utah is playing some good football here at the end of the season. It's one of those situations where I think Utah's way undervalued by people nationally because again, they're they're part of the Pac-12, which only a fraction of the nation watches because their games tend to be later in the day and uh, they just don't get the visit the the eyeballs. They don't get the awareness and especially a team like Utah from within the Pac-12, which has been consistently good but seldom great, right? And so um, Oregon is the is the flashy one that gets attention, and yet they weren't able to you know finish the deal. Yeah, well, and uh, I saw some people commenting saying this looks like a team that uh, isn't playing for their coach because they know that he's gone. And as it turns out, um, he their coach Mario Cristobal didn't end up leaving <laughs> for Miami right uh, just after so- that game, pretty much. So they so they must have knew something was up, right? They they seemed to have been aware that some dialogue was going on or something because it does that that explains a lot, right? It could explain a lot. It could explain a lot for sure. Um, 
then in the uh, we'll briefly mention here the ACC. Um, no Clemson this year in the championship game for the first time in who knows how long. Um, and then there being Pitt versus Wake Forest, and Pitt uh, had a nice score to win the game of forty-five twenty-one. Um, I didn't end yeah. up watching any of that game. Did you catch anything about it? You know, I didn't either, and I may go back and watch it for obvious reasons a little bit later. Uh, but um, um, yeah, and I, I would have predicted a pit victory. In fact, I don't remember whether we even picked that one or not um, uh, over Wake Forest because I didn't think much of Wake Forest. I thought Wake Forest was one of those teams that uh, whose record and situation was was better than their actual team. And uh, so they were going to get exposed at some point, and I think Pitt did that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I th- kind of think that's what happened there too. Um, and then there was, in the Big 12, uh, Baylor versus Oklahoma State, another one of those rematches, except this time Oklahoma State was the one that beat Baylor in the regular season, and Baylor was getting their shot at the the higher-ranked team. Um, and, right. Uh, I only ended up catching the end of that particular game leading up to the SEC championship game. Um, but it was an exciting ending where Baylor scored, but they were only up uh, 21 to 16 and Oklahoma state had some time left on the clock. And for an odd reason, Baylor's coach kept calling timeouts while Oklahoma state was driving, I guess to, you know, give his team time to recuperate on defense because Oklahoma state was being pretty successful at getting lots of first downs. But at that point you would think that time is more important than, you know, uh, talking to your team necessarily. Um, and it ended up being where Oklahoma state went for it on like fourth down with like no, almost no time left. And the guy was literally inches away from the pylon. They show the pylon cam and the football's like right in front of the pylon, but he doesn't quite touch it. So the Oklahoma State was so close, but they couldn't quite uh, pull out the comeback. Well, that's the thing, is that Baylor had control of that game in many respects. It seemed like, I mean, it looked like a repeat of the Nebraska-Iowa uh, game. Uh, it was going to play out right in front of our eyes again. I was glued to it. I watched a lot of that game, which is why I didn't watch some of the other games uh, in the early part of the day, because I was watching that Big 12 game. Um but, uh, yeah, I mean, frankly, for three quarters, Baylor was a dominant team. I think, if not going into the fourth quarter, certainly very late in the third quarter, it was like 21 to three or 24 to seven or something like that going into the final quarter. So, I mean, it, it you know, Baylor had control of that game and then they didn't. Right. They <laughs> left off the look, gas. They looked very Nebraska like and how they handled their fourth quarter. <laughs> yep, yep. Well, Oklahoma State almost came back. Yeah, so the final score ended up being 21-16. I'm pretty sure we didn't give a okay. score prediction, but I thought Oklahoma State was going to win that. Um, so yeah. that was a bit shocking and I, to me. And and I thought that too. Uh, now, I will say that, you know, I, I am very impressed by Baylor's coach. I, I, I loved his comments after the game were, was over. Um, he's just a really impressive guy. And he has his head on straight, and the message he's given to his team, I thought, was just right on. Um, and uh, um, you know, he wasn't going to let any uh, per se- perceived, you know, snubbing from the committee or anything. He wasn't going to let any of that bother him, and he wasn't going to let it bother his his players. And he had a great, healthy approach to the whole deal. I was just really impressed. Nice. Yeah, I know you were saying as well that. Um, 
defensively, they basically you know came out with a particular formation or like daring oh, yeah. Oklahoma State to run the ball. Oh, um, oh, they were. Yeah, yeah, and Oklahoma State couldn't do anything about it for three quarters. Let me see if I can explain this really quickly to you and 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 our and our listeners. So Baylor came out in a defense in which basically they had four defensive linemen and two linebackers in the box. So they only had six people in the box. Okay. Then they had their outside linebackers and their corners, uh, basically covering, a, uh, you know, in, in quarters coverage, the field. Okay. And then they had two safeties, high safeties in the back. So you basically have almost a man to man type of arrangement underneath a two deep zone. Uh, and, that sounds great in concept, except usually, i.e., I think I made the comment that if you ran that defense in the Big Ten, number you need two things. You need two super stud safeties, all right, because they're going to have to be able to read a play correctly, and when it's a run, be hauling ass down the alley of their two sides of the field and make tackles close to the line of scrimmage, uh, or you are going to give up a run. I mean, people are going to be able to run on you. Quarterbacks are going to be able to run on you late in a, you know, a pass play. I mean, there's just not enough people in the box to, to defend. Right. So you, you need superstars at safety and they had them, you know, at least against Oklahoma state, because they were doing it, man. They they were stopping people run, trying to, when they try to run it, they would stop them often enough um, to keep Oklahoma state from being able to move it down the field. And yet, whenever somebody was deep, they were double covered. It was amazing. Yep. Came in with a smart game plan. Yes, he did. It was very impressive. Mm-hmm. Um, and now we're getting into the two games that we uh, predicted. Um, there's the Michigan-Iowa game, our kind of surprise Big Ten championship matchup. Um, and we both predicted on the previous podcast that Michigan would win. I predicted uh, 45-24. You predicted 38-17. So, you know, kind of like Michigan was going to win, but Iowa would put up a, a valiant effort, basically. Um, the final score, though, ended up being something quite different, um, 42 to 3. Uh, I will caution that that score does not um, exemplify how close the game really was for, you know, like three quarters, uh, because I believe it was only like 21 to 3 going into the into the fourth quarter. Um, and Iowa had, you know, a missed touchdown opportunity where they were like right at the goal line, a missed field goal, you know, so they were driving the ball on offense and then couldn't finish the job on a number of occasions. Correct. And, and Michigan didn't do what most teams do against Iowa, which is make mistakes at a, you know, with a frequency that allows Iowa to take advantage of them. And that's what Iowa does. Iowa just plays disciplined football, tries to minimize their mistakes and waits for the other team to lose the game. Uh, just hand it, hand it over to them, which is what we do every year against Iowa. Right. That's the strategy. Yep. I know Michigan did throw at least one interception. They they did, but I'm just saying they didn't make enough. I didn't say that. Uh, I acknowledge that Michigan didn't play perfect, and they would certainly admit that. But that's the that's the Iowa strategy: is hang around, hang around, keep it interesting. But yeah, even early in the game, Alex, I don't know if you were watching at the very beginning, but. Um, one of the first drives, Iowa drove it down the field, and they ha- ran this play, and I believe it was their fullback, was frankly open oh. in the end zone, and the quarterback overthrew him. J- 
just by, you know, maybe a foot and a half or something. But he was open. Well, I, and, uh, I think that was one of those trick plays, right, where they threw it to, like, his wide yes. receiver, and the wide receiver overthrew yes. him a little bit. Mm-hmm. You're right. It was that. It was a flea flicker. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And that was like, yeah, I was first drive of the game and they nearly scored. And uh, cause I did watch, I watched the whole game up until I think it was late third quarter, early fourth. Iowa threw another, uh, or gave the ball ball up one more time through another interception. And at that point, you know, they still only had three points. I was like, okay, this is over. I don't need to watch anymore. The rest of it. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. But, but Michigan played well, uh, solidly and did what they were supposed to do. And I, I think I may have said last week when, when we did our podcast that, that uh, even though I was, I was giving, you know, Iowa, Michigan, you know, that credibility of, of being somewhat tight because of the way that Iowa tends to play the game, I said there was history in this game, the Big Ten championship game, that once one team kind of gets on a roll, oftentimes it just kind of unravels, right? And it ends up being somewhat of a blowout. And I felt like that was beginning to happen then in the fourth quarter. Like, yeah. you know, I mean, by the end of the game, M- Michigan was the dominant team in every respect. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it also felt like from what I saw of the highlights of that fourth quarter, um, Harbaugh didn't quite, he didn't let off the gas, you know, cause I think he wanted to make a statement to the committee that like, mm-hmm. this is how good we are. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah. Um, so, you know, uh, good for Michigan, you know, that they they made it into the playoff, that they won their Big Ten uh, championship game. That was the result we wanted to see. Uh, and then, of course, there was the big game in the SEC, uh, number one versus number three, Georgia versus Alabama, you know, a matchup that everyone had been looking forward to all year uh, with kind of a bit of quite opposing storylines coming into the game, right, with Georgia being the sole undefeated team, you know, throughout the whole year, except for Cincinnati. Um, and Alabama, you know, with all of Alabama's usual talent, but struggling, you know, in many games, you know, having nearly lost, come so close to losing against Auburn just the week before, right? So we were both saying that uh, Georgia should be able to win this game. Uh, I predicted a lower scoring 24-17. You gave it to Georgia 31-24. But we did both mention that, you know, this is Kirby Smart going up against his mentor Nick Saban and Kirby Smart had never beaten Nick Saban before and that that uh, curse might come back to bite him and of course that's what ended up happening on Saturday well yeah and and basically it became a talent thing right uh, you 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 made a comment during the game when we were texting back and forth during that game uh, that you, you know it, it prompted you the way that the game was playing out for you to maybe review George's schedule and and you kind of recognize that, well, even though Georgia was undefeated, the truth is, is that in hindsight, their schedule was maybe not as daunting as it might have appeared as uh, people looked at the schedule earlier, right? Uh, I mean, they, uh, uh, they had beaten a Clemson team that obviously gave them great credibility early in the season. Uh, but then you realize that Clemson was really playing poorly at that point in the year. And, uh, uh, you know, was trying to find itself. So, so maybe that victory didn't have quite as much water. And then you start realizing that their biggest uh, wins in the conference are really some teams. I mean, a couple of teams that had fired their coaches, right? Like Florida. Um, right. And, and also uh, Arkansas. You know, Kentucky, they did. And yeah, Arkansas, Kentucky were good wins, but 
neither of those teams are going to be looked at and viewed by through the same prism as Alabama. Right. Yeah. Arkansas, Auburn, Kentucky, Florida, you know, those are all their top wins uh, besides from that Clemson game, which like you say, looks not as good in retrospect since Clemson's struggled so much this year. Um, and this, of course, this is my first game, uh, the first game of the year where I watched Georgia and the one where I right. really wanted them to win. Cause of course I didn't want Alabama to, you know, get in again and kind of muck up the playoff committee. If Georgia had won, it would have been a pretty clear cut, you know, how things yep. would have played out. Um, but right. their offense just looked so anemic. And then their defense, which has been praised as like the best defense in the country. In a decade. In a decade. Right. No, people are calling this a once in a decade defense. Right. And admittedly, like when their big guys got in there, you know, they made some nice tackles at times, you know, and drove them back and stuff. But like they made a point of showing their huge you know, defensive tackle guy, he could only stay out there for like two, three plays before he had to go to the sidelines right. to catch his breath because Alabama was running a hurry-up offense and they right. couldn't keep up with it. Exactly. And, uh, and yeah, and there were plays where that guy wasn't doing anything. Even Georgia's offensive line, uh, th- th- I mean, both their offense and defensive line, those guys were taking plays off, mm-hmm. right, where they wouldn't do a damn thing, right? They weren't even trying. They yeah. would just stand up. Yep. It was crazy. And, it was crazy. And talk about offensive lines. The, you know, although the MVP probably went to the quarterback because he did play great, um, but the real MVP of the game was Alabama's offensive line. After they had looked terrible against Auburn, you know, they had not. Alabama was struggling to score so much against that Auburn team, and then that offensive line comes in here against this once again this formidable Georgia defense and is able to give that quarterback so much time. He had so right. much time. Oh. oh, he could he could have ate lunch in, <laughs> in the backfield. I'm serious. It was yeah, ridiculous. You're right. I mean, it was crazy. It was. Yeah. Well, and 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 there's so much that's rattling around in my head about that, uh, and some of it will be for our off season conversation. But it's it it really was disgusting to watch. It was frustrating and hard for me to watch it. Um, yeah. But uh, you know, I put myself through about three quarters of it, and then finally I bailed on it too because it was like, ah, I, I can't stand this. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think I bailed sometime in the fourth quarter too. Yeah, but uh, anyway, uh, bottom line is Alabama was the superior team to Georgia, no doubt. Uh, and, and if you were now based on that performance, even if they were to rematch, which will lead us into our next thing, I think Alabama is, is going to be a pretty clear favorite. Yeah. Well, and I tell you what, it's, it's classic Nick Saban, you know, and that he, he shows struggles, you know, his team uh, looks worse against, you know, competition that's worse than them, you know, but then they go into a game where they're the underdog and it's the big game, you know, the one that really matters, you know, to get you into playoff contention. And what does Saban do? He comes in with a great coaching game plan and has those guys fired up. I'm sure he tore the, the, the you know what out of them after uh after that near near loss to Auburn and I, I you know this is one of those things where I, I I don't like Nick Saban overall but I do love a lot of his quotes and he had a great one after the game where he said uh what these guys wanted to gain was more respect not just the fact that they were underdogs but you guys the media gave us a lot of really positive rat poison the rat poison you usually give us is fatal. This rat poison you gave us this week was yummy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
which, you know, is exactly what we've said in the past, right? Saban's been very public about the fact that, like, you know, he hates it when the media is saying, oh, Alabama's the greatest thing since sliced bread and they're going to crush this team, right? Because it's hard to get his right. guys motivated. But then this time when they're the underdog, you know, he he's like, well, thanks for that media. I'm feeding this right to my players. <laughs> that's right. Well, and that's the thing. That guy is a he's a psychologist uh, to the max. I think his he and his massive staff, which is a whole other topic that we will bring up. I'm sending some little teasers out here to our audience about what we're going to be talking about in the future, uh, has changed the way you prepare for a games. It's changed the way that you, you build a football team and the money and time and effort it takes to compete. All those paradigms have shifted thanks to Nick Saban, which is why he's so great but it's also p- part of what's destroying the sport that I used to love. Uh-huh. I'm loving it less now. Loving a little bit less. Um, and then we we should briefly mention here, of course, uh, Cincinnati playing against Houston outside of the Power Five. Um, if Cincinnati lost this game, they would probably lose. They would lose their spot in the in the playoff. Um, but they uh, they maintained pretty good control throughout the game. It was it was actually it was close. By the halftime, I think it was like 14-13. They were only up by one. Uh, but then in the third quarter, they got like 21 points and uh, were able to close it out 35-20. Um, watching the highlights of that, I will say Cincinnati does have some real uh, speed in some of their players. Um, that was the thing yep. that stood out to me the most. Yep, I, I would agree with you. They have some individual talent that uh, when it when they're able to get it in space, does a lot of damage. Mm-hmm. Now the the challenge for them is going to be when they match up against these teams that have the kind of depth that a lot of these big time teams have. Um, then, like you know, it's not going to go well, uh, which we'll get to when we get to this playoff setup. Which right. And so on the previous podcast, we talked a bit about you know how we thought the playoff rankings would go based off our. Um, predictions for the games and if Georgia were to win it seemed pretty clear if everybody won that was expected to win then it seemed pretty clear that it was going to be Georgia one Michigan two then like Cincy three and then probably Oklahoma State four right because they were like number five uh, last week and if they had won their Big 12 title game they probably would have been in over a Notre Dame that didn't play a conference championship game right but Correct. of course, uh, Bama beating Georgia kind of screwed all that up. So then the question became, okay, are they going to put Georgia in because they're a one-loss SEC team that's been you know at the top this whole year, even though they didn't win their SEC championship game? And of course, the answer to that question was yes, which wasn't hard to predict given the past behavior of the uh, committee. And it admittedly, you know... Um, not unfounded, I think, this year because, like, it would have been different if there was like an undefeated team, you know, in the Big sitting 12 on the outside. or whatever, yeah. you know, yeah, sitting on the outside, right? But everybody else had at least one or two losses. Um, so it made it a bit easier for them to do that, I think. Yeah. Well, I, I would agree with you. Uh, where I have the, and maybe this is our moment, and uh, we're not going to talk about the games anymore. We're going to start talking about this whole college football playoff thing. Uh, what I have a problem with is the is the positioning of everything. Okay, so here here would be my my argument would be like um, why would they have moved Alabama to number one just because they beat Georgia? 
because um, Michigan's only got one loss. They're the Big Ten champion. At one time, there were like four or five uh, Big Ten teams in the top 10 or 11 in the country, you know, during the midseason. Okay. And so why would they automatically move Alabama ahead? You know, they're not supposed to be doing the recency bias is supposed to be eliminated from this. And yet they jump Alabama ahead of Michigan, even though Michigan had a dominant victory over in its Big Ten championship game over Iowa. They had just the previous week beaten a top four ranked uh, Ohio State team. Okay, and Michigan's only loss was to a very good Wisconsin team where Alabama lost to a Texas A&M team that wasn't very good, that was not ranked. Well, sorry, you mean uh, Michigan State. Excuse me, you're right, Michigan State. Michigan State was ranked, right? And in fact, in the final poll, was still ranked in like the top 12 or so, uh, maybe even top 10. That's my argument. Why in the hell, when their only loss was to number 10, and every other game they won, including winning a number of top 10, top 25 matchups, right? And Alabama gets pushed uh, in ahead of them, even though Alabama lost to an unranked Texas A&M. Why? Right. Well, so actually, so interesting. Uh, in the final rankings, uh, it ended up being Alabama 1, Michigan 2, Georgia 3, Cincinnati 4. Uh, right. Michigan State was 10, and Texas A&M was number 25. So well, There you go. Yeah. See, so, so why in the hell did they move Michigan ahead? And then to make matters worse, why in the hell does Georgia – only dropped to three, you know, because they did everything they could to make sure that they can have their all SEC final. That's well, why. Well, here, here's my thinking. Cause as soon as the, it was clear that Alabama was going to win against Georgia, I was thinking, okay, so Alabama and Georgia are both going to be in, but they're going to do the rankings in a certain way so that, um, so that Alabama and Georgia don't have to play each other right away, right in the semifinal. Yeah, uh, and I think that's crap. That's the wrong motivation. I don't want to have that in the goddamn finals. Pardon my French. I don't want that in the finals. Because guess what? You've just now made the national championship game a regional contest that's nothing more than the, the SEC championship game. And no one's going to watch. I'm here to argue that all Big Ten, ACC, Big 12, and Pac-12, especially Big 12 and Pac-12 teams and fans should boycott the national championship if it ends up being Georgia and Alabama. Because it is, it is a crime that they did not set it up to guarantee that, that Alabama-Georgia rematch would be the semifinal so that there was a guarantee that there would be somebody other than an SEC team in the championship. Because you just gifted, you just gifted Alabama a near automatic win. Alabama is going to be an overwhelming favorite on in everybody's eyes, except that Cincinnati ball club and their fans, they're going to be an overwhelming favorite in that matchup. Overwhelming. Okay. And that's crap. Alabama, Alabama should have been playing Georgia. Georgia should have been at least dropped three spots to fourth. And they should have matched those two guys up in the semifinal. The fact that they didn't is driven by the money partners, the, the, the television and revenue partners 
who wanted it this way because they want to build their brand, which is SEC. The ESPN is their moneymaker is the SEC. And that's what they wanted. And that's what that damn committee gave them. And it's crap because in my opinion, Michigan should have been one. Then you could have left everything the same. Let Michigan play Cincinnati. Excuse me. Let Michigan play, uh, um, you know, uh, Georgia. Uh, and then Alabama would have been two. Cincinnati should have been three. And Georgia should have been four. So the same matchups. Um, but uh, um, Alabama, or Michigan is playing Cincinnati. And... Uh, Alabama's playing Georgia. That's what I meant to say. Right. However, that worked. Well, okay. Well, actually, what you said at first, which was I, at first was was wrong. I, I know. Well, no, but what I was gonna say was what you said first was Michigan one, uh, Bama two, um, Cincinnati three, and then Georgia four, which would right. which would have which would have created the same matchups that we got. Right. Exactly. That's honestly what I. That's kind of what I thought they were gonna do. I thought that was the more natural way to rank them. Because I I knew that they were not going to let they were going to figure Georgia out a way. Georgia fall. Be, well, yeah, well, right. And because I'm less SEC conspiracy here than you, um, oh, in terms right. of like that they they well, I'm sure that maybe they do want the the SEC uh, cha- those two teams to fight each other in the national championship for ESPN. You know that may be true, but at the same time, I mean it wasn't that competitive of a game. Like Alabama, you know, was pretty dominant right. over Georgia. Pretty dominant. Right. Absolutely. So I don't, you know, I think we'd be in like a situation like that Alabama LSU um, championship game from, you know, way back in the early days of the playoff where it wasn't really that interesting. My, my point is in all these situations, they have the ability to manipulate and massage a little bit. And they've done it every damn year. That damn committee has done it every year because they're able to use all these different variables and have the eye test, which can always be the default thing that, oh, these two teams were really close, but razor thin. But, you know, the eyeball test and uh, what, what our committee members believe, this was the right. So they're able to manipulate that in any way they wanted. So you cannot tell me that that committee didn't want to have those two matchups for the semifinals leading to a final that is going to be a regional I don't give a shit final. Well, but here, but here's the thing. I would like thing. to organize I would like to organize an actual organized boycott of watching that game when it comes to that. Okay? Now, I know you you uh, somebody's going to say, "Well, well Pete, if 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 Georgia beats Michigan and Alabama beats Cincinnati, then that is what it is." My point is you avoid that. You have the ability to massage those four in such a way that you avoid that. And you create the appearance of a more national championship. Instead, you've made it another crowning of the SEC's the greatest that there's ever been. Right. And it's bullshit. Well, that's here, not what the CFP was designed to do. Well, here's here's my here's my argument, okay? They they wanted to avoid having Alabama and Georgia play against each other guaranteed in the semifinal, right? Because we literally just saw that game, and like we said, it wasn't that close, right? If it had been a really close battle to the death, maybe it'd be more interesting, but it wasn't. Um, 
and so they want to they I think they want to avoid that for ratings and everything else. So they're setting it up so that they don't play each other guaranteed. And if Michigan comes to play like they should, then they've got a good chance, a, a solid chance at least, to beat Georgia and play Alabama in that finals game. They've set it up so that can happen. Yes, I agree. But there's already a bunch of other built-in advantages, okay, that are going to lead to the Georgia-Alabama final. Not only are those two teams most likely the more talented teams, but you've also got the games being played down in, in uh, at the Orange Bowl, the Michigan-Georgia game, okay? And, and, if, and if you're worried about eyeballs on the TV sets, you wouldn't have the damn games on December 31st. And in fact, that Orange Bowl game between uh, Michigan and, and uh, um, Georgia Georgia is going to be at night on New Year's Eve. No one's going to watch the damn thing. They're all out partying. They're all out celebrating the new year, looking at this damn 2021 with the COVID year and, and looking forward to a much better 2022. Trust me, people are going to be ready to celebrate and look in the rearview mirror to 2021. So it's going to diminish. So they've screwed up from the very beginning by scheduling these two uh, uh, um, semifinal games on the 31st. They already did this once during this contract with CFP, and it was a disaster. The, 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 the ratings on those games were horrible compared to what they had been just the previous year and in years since where they moved it back to New Year's Day. So this is a horrible, horrible idea. So if you're going to have an uninteresting matchup, then the semifinal would have been the time to do that. So put that damn Alabama-Georgia thing. And, and, and if you're uh, the Big 12 or the Pac-12 who have been left out of this Final Four a lot, uh, I mean, the Big 10's been left out a couple times too, but these other conferences have been left out even more, okay? It's basically been the SEC and the uh, ACC and occasionally Notre Dame or a Big 12 well, team. And Oklahoma. You know, you know, that's what I mean, a Big 12 team. Um, uh, and, but my point is that those conferences have gotten shit on, and and so is the Big 10. So, so uh, and now this year the ACC is going to because now it's it's golden child uh, Clemson stumbled. So, um, and here we are again with the SEC having two teams getting two big paychecks instead of one. Okay, everything about this helps the SEC and makes an already unbalanced playing field more unbalanced in favor of the SEC in the Southeast. So to me, it's a, it was a horrible decision by that committee that had the ability to manipulate those positionings so that they could have avoided this. And that is the kind of crap that they've been doing since this thing was created. And that's why I am so ready for that committee to have a whole different set of goals and circumstances that they have to achieve which includes guaranteeing teams from all these major conferences get a, a piece of the pie. Okay. Guarantee it. We'll, uh, we'll talk more in depth about the semifinal games as well as all of the right. big bowl games in a future podcast when we have a <laughs> better sense of everything. Um, right. Interestingly, I just looked it up. Um, that Alabama-Cincinnati game, the current line on the odds in Vegas is minus 13.5 for – uh, Alabama, which is honestly right. lower than I would have expected. I was kind of thinking it'd be higher. Well, I, I, well, they're trying. They're, yeah, they're, uh, I would agree, and I would say that when they start to see the early money, um, 
you know, all going the route of uh, of uh, Alabama because people expect Alabama to win it big. Uh, they'll that number will climb. I believe it'll Could probably well go be. off at much higher than that. And uh, another interesting thing in the world of college football that happened this uh, past week or so is that there was a, a meeting internally with the NCAA about uh, playoff expansion. You know, that topic, which kind of, yes. it was on everyone's minds earlier in the year, and then it kind of got paused because of all the conference expansion well, stuff. Well, and, and, and to be clear, it wasn't the NCAA. It was the uh, college football playoff. You're group, right. Right? Correct. Because the NCAA does not, does not own any rights or activity. This this I love to criticize the NCAA, but they aren't they aren't responsible for this debacle. That is exclusively the the college football playoff. Right. Yes, you're right. It's just the college football playoff. But the 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 news I saw out of that is that apparently um, there's interest in expanding the playoff and making it so the first round would have uh, games be played on campuses rather than at bowls and things like that. But the sticking right. point that was kind of hobbling negotiations a bit was the idea of power the Power Five conferences getting auto bids um, to go to the playoff. Um, now I'm curious to know was that in in terms of the discussion about eight teams or twelve? Because if it's twelve teams, then I feel like the group of five doesn't really have a leg to stand on there. You know, at, at that point there's 12, 12 spots available. You give five to the, you know, biggest conferences or whatever, right. you know, as automatic bids and then, you know, have at least one or two in there for the group of five or whatever. Um, we'll see. That should be enough, enough wealth, enough spots to spread the wealth around. But if it's eight teams, then I can understand the argument more because then that's five out of eight, which is I, obviously a majority. I would agree. I would agree. And, and here's the thing. The group of five on their own don't have a leg to stand on in any of those circumstances, because history describes, and the fact is that all the money that has found its way into this sport through television and everything else comes through to that sport because of the big time programs, right? They are the cash cow, right? So, so um, these group of five are forgetting that history and that reality. Now, the, the leg that they can stand on, it's called politicians, okay? And if all of those other institutions want to raise collective H-E-double toothpicks uh, <laughs> because they think they're being treated mistreated with the current um, um, climate in Washington, D.C., uh, I guarantee you that politicians would would eat that up and come to the group of five's defense. Okay. So the, the biggest strength they have is the fact that they have a bunch of politicians in Washington that are chomping at the bit to, to have an open discussion about the current setup with colleges and their, and their athletic departments and colleges in the big conferences are so fearful of that. And rightfully so that this is the one leverage point that needs to happen. It's like it's like somebody fearing that an, uh, a law is going to be brought to the Supreme Court, knowing that if it does get brought to the Supreme Court, it's going to be found unconstitutional and they're not going to be able to do whatever it is that they're doing, right? Uh, and so that's what's hamstringing the big 
uh, Power Five conferences, is they do not want the politicians in Washington getting involved because they know that does not end well for them at all, at all. And right. as a result, they're giving everything up. They're, that's, why, that's why NIL was created. I mean, all that stuff ultimately is about fear of that being brought full circle to the politicians in Washington. Right. And, to and be, now that to be, to be clear, what you're talking about in regards to the politicians is the tax tax exempt status of the universities, which is the major kind of death blow, you know, that's hanging over their necks, as you say. Uh, absolutely. And, and, and they're so scared of that between the presidents and athletic directors of these major uh, conferences and universities that they are, they are giving away the house, the barn and the business. Okay. <laughs> they're giving it all away because they're so scared of that happening. And that's where, that's the leverage point that the group of five have in this negotiation. That's, that's the stick in the mud. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, we'll, so, we'll see how it ends up playing out then. I, I think that, you know, some kind of expansion of the playoff is inevitable, but it's going to be, you know, what exactly what form does it take? Like we said, what, you know, how, how is the auto bids for the conference champions of the power five versus the group of five? How is that allocated, et cetera, et cetera. Um, see, I'm- I, I was going to say this earlier, because there's no doubt that Cincinnati is a massive underdog against Bama. But if somehow Bam, the, the, instead of getting the Bama that played against Georgia, we get the Bama that played against Auburn comes to play that day for whatever reason. And Cincinnati is able to pull out the miracle upset and go to the, to the, you know, national championship, having conquered the, the evil massive uh, monolith of Alabama. That would be such a great, you know, uh, storyline for the playoff in college football this year. It would be oh, a huge boost to the group of five's confidence and it, everything. It it absolutely would. Not going to happen, but it absolutely <laughs> would. I'm serious. It's not. It's just not. Now, I mean, is it absolutely 100% not possible? No. There is a singular scenario where that would happen, where, like you said, Alabama shows up and thinks their shit doesn't stink and plays like uh, crap. Uh, and not focused and, you know, just thinking that the, the, they all they had to do was show up to win. That could happen. But even if that happened, I believe that by halftime of a game where where uh, Alabama showed up that unprepared, the other the second half would give them enough time to recover and ultimately win. It would end up being a close victory and an embarrassing victory for them, but it would be a victory nonetheless. That's my opinion. OK, and uh, I'm sorry and I apologize to any group of five person who disagrees with me on that, but that's, that's my view. Okay. Uh, and, and then part of that is, you know, you've seen it before, uh, well in 2016 or 17, when, when, you know, uh, UCF who got, who got ignored, uh, and they were undefeated and then they played Auburn, who was a team that had just beaten Alabama, uh, went out and, you know, beat Auburn and they beat them fair and square. Now, Part of that was Auburn was was uh, playing in a lesser bowl game in their minds and maybe didn't have their best effort that day for UCF. But UCF rose to the occasion, played hard, played disciplined, and, and won the football game. So there are examples where that stuff happens, no doubt. That's why they play the game, so to speak. But I'm just frustrated by the built-in advantages that, that, that have, have been established by this college football playoff, specifically for the SEC. And... And I think in part 
it's been coordinated because that's the revenue partner that they chose to go with, which was ESPN. And ESPN needed, especially at the beginning of the college football playoff, they needed the SEC to be the dominant conference because uh, in just the years prior to that, the Big Ten had walked away from ESPN and went with Fox and and uh, their own Big Ten network. And so this was a power play. It was all a power play. Mm-hmm. And I've never trusted it since then. <laughs> all right. All right. Uh, moving on to other news in college football <laughs> since, you know, it's crazy that we just recorded about a week ago. Um, and at the time we were talking about Lincoln Riley switching over to USC, which was a massive news and that these players were um, decommitting from Oklahoma that had been recruited to that school and everything else. Um, and then pretty, pretty much the day after I think we recorded that podcast, the news came out that uh, Brian Kelly from Notre Dame was leaving that school for LSU, uh, which was obviously that was kind of the big hanging question. Okay, Lincoln Riley didn't go to LSU like everyone was saying. Who are they going to get? So they get Brian Kelly, who has had a very good year at Notre Dame this year, only one loss. You know, admittedly, their strength of schedule isn't that great. Um, but still, you know, he's done like well at Notre Dame, you know, not like amazing, but he's done well. Um, so what's your thoughts on that hire for, by LSU? I uh, Well, my opinion is that uh, Brian Kelly's a good coach, uh, one of the top coaches really in the country. Um, he's, he's been successful everywhere he's been, but he's, but he's mostly been in the, you know, the Midwest, right? The upper Midwest. He, his coaching career was primarily in Michigan um, with Grand Valley State, and then he uh, was the coach for a few years at Cincinnati. He's one of the first guys to really build that program, he, he got, that's not true. The, the guy that was just before him had really started the building process of making Cincinnati into a consistent winner within their conference. And then, uh, um, um, and then he, and then he got the big opportunity to go to Notre Dame and has done very well there, including playing in the, in the college football playoff a couple of times. So he's done very well. He hasn't won a national title, but he's the winningest coach in Notre Dame history. Did you know that? I didn't know that. Wait, yeah, more than the, more than Lou Holtz. More than Newt, more than Lou Holtz, more than Newt Rockney. Huh. Uh, yep, yep. Eris Parsegian, all the great names of Notre Dame lore. He is the winningest coach in in uh in uh, Notre Dame history. Um so uh, uh and that I mean impressive. that in num- I mean that in number of wins. I don't think that's a percentage thing. Right. right? So um and but, part of that is is how you long know, is nowadays he? We... Right. Well, we play more games than we did back then, I guess. Right. But, exactly. But how, how long has he been there, though? I don't feel like it's been uh, like you know, more than a decade. I'm gonna, right. I'm. I'm going to say it's. It's. It's been more than a decade. Yeah. Uh, okay. uh, you know, we can. We. You know what? Uh, you got a computer in front of you. Look that up. But. <laughs> but anyway, um, I just think he's a bad fit for New New uh, Louisiana. You know, he just doesn't seem like a Cajun to me at all. Right. I mean, his personality. Nothing about him seems like it would click with the, with the, you know, because I mean, Louisiana is a different breed, right? That's a whole different culture. And, uh, and that was one of the things about the previous coach at, at, uh, down there at, at LSU, he was one of them, right? And so he was able to recruit very well locally because he really could sell that. Hey, I'm one of you, right? Uh, now he, he left as much for, you know, off the field issues 
as anything else. Um, um, but he also had begun to lose, which goes back to the old adage that if you win, boy, people will turn their head on just about anything. But as soon as you start losing, if you're doing stupid stuff, uh, then that will come back to haunt you at that time. Yeah. And that's been played out over and over again. Uh, I have two two notes. Um, apparently, Brian Kelly got there to Notre Dame in 2010. So it's been 11 years. 11 years. So there okay. you go. Um, yep. And then uh, I saw a pretty funny video of him like talking to the students yes. at like a basketball game or something. And he, he starts talking in a Southern accent, which he yes. clearly oh, is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Clearly not oh, native. Oh, oh. Oh, that, that became very viral and was hilarious. That is funny. That guy, I mean, how stupid. Don't try to fake it, man. Um, so, yeah, that was pretty sad. Yeah. Uh, and that's just the thing. I, I just don't think, and, well, and now, like, I, uh, uh, you know, uh, he's having some decommits and some people are abandoning ship because they're looking at what, what life's going to be like under him and realizing that maybe they're not excited about being a part of that, right? So, so um, he may do very well because, again, he's a he's a very good coach. I mean, he won multiple national championships at Grand Valley State in Michigan, and then he went to Cincinnati and and did very well there. Um, and then, which which led him to the uh, sorry about that um, led him to the uh, Notre Dame job, you know. So so he's been a very successful coach, no yeah. doubt about it. D- didn't you say that? Uh his like LSU's current starting quarterback even went into the transfer portal. Yeah. I, I just read that uh, just a few hours before we uh, started our podcast here that uh, uh, both he who is already at the school and was the starting quarterback this past year, or maybe just part of the year. Cause I think they did have multiple quarterbacks that started. Uh, so maybe he was the odd guy out. I don't know the exact circumstance, but a highly regarded quarterback nonetheless. And he just put himself in the portal and his his brother, who was a recruit, a commit to LSU, decommitted as well. Right. Um, and then uh, they promoted their current defensive coordinator that was at LSU, uh, Marcus Freeman, to fill the role of head coach. Um, uh, for, sorry, the, for the bowl game? I'm sorry, for the uh, – this is for Notre Dame. Sorry, not LSU. Oh, I messed yes. that up. yes. Yes. Okay. But, yes. So, you know, a little bit similar to um, Florida, who we talked about last week, who got uh, Billy Napier. Um, you know, they're not breaking the bank on this particular one, right? They're promoting someone with from within, somebody who seems to be well-respected within the program and a solid coach and everything else, um, but not one of these five-star big-name hires. Well, he's, he's not a big-name hire only because he's too young to have the resume to be a big-name hire. But he has a great reputation as a fiery and competitive recruiter. Uh, his players love him. And I think the athletic director and president of Notre Dame recognized that they had a gem right there on the staff. And so as soon as Brian Kelly announced that he was leaving, they, they didn't bat an eye. They immediately said, no problem. Notre Dame is in a great place. Everything's fine. We're going to do very well. Uh, we're not concerned. Right. They didn't they did not miss a beat. So, number one, I think they kind of anticipated this was going to happen. Maybe even we're already thinking about it because, you know, Brian's time there was growing a little bit stale, um, um, you know, and, and he had had some issues while at Notre Dame. So so I don't think it bothered them at all. I really don't. And they had a plan. 
So, boom, they didn't miss a beat. I was very impressed with how Notre Dame handled that. Yep. Seems that way. Um, And then, of course, after last week, right, with Lincoln Lincoln Riley leaving um, Oklahoma, we knew that Bob Stoops already at the time, we knew that Bob Stoops was probably going to step in for the bowl game, at least, to coach them there. Um, But there was the question about a more long-term fix. Um, and they have since decided that Clemson's defensive coordinator, Brett Venables, is going to be the new head coach at Oklahoma. Um, not too shocking there because I believe Brett has a past, Brent has a past history with Oklahoma, and he was one of those coaches on uh, Dabo's staff at Clemson that you knew was going to get a head coaching opportunity at some point. Um, so right. this seems like the fit. And Brett Brett had, had actually interviewed for a number of head coaching jobs. He had been a finalist for many, many head coaching jobs over the last four, four years, five years or so. So Brent was a guy that clearly was in the market to become a head coach, was a great, was a, a great defensive coordinator, had done very well there at Clemson, built a name for himself. And even when he was at Oklahoma, he had a good reputation. He's a fiery competitor. In fact, you might see video of him where he has to have a guy who literally hangs on to his belt loops <laughs> to hold him from yep. running on the field. I mean, it's like a full-time job to keep the guy from going frenetic during a game. He's <laughs> kind of, he's, he comes from the, the, the Bo Pelini uh, school of intensity. Um, and uh, is just a nut. And he, and uh, I believe, uh, he was on the staff. Let me, I'm trying to think of it. He was on the staff with uh, Mike Stoops, Bob's younger brother, who was the defensive coordinator at Oklahoma. And then Brent was uh, on the staff at that time. Then Mike Stoops got a head coaching job at the University of Arizona. And Brent became the defensive coordinator at Oklahoma and was on Bob's staff as the coordinator. And then Mike got fired, came back to Oklahoma. They became co-defensive coordinators again. Uh, with both of them, and then Brent then went on to to uh, Clemson when got when the opportunity presented itself. So they kind of gave Brent a, a transitional time there, um, and then he he moved on. So um, he has a, a very positive history with Oklahoma, and is intense intense as a coach, intense as a recruiter, but very different than Riley. So the culture of that team just took a one eighty. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think you might. Although a lot of these, uh, a lot of this news about transfers and things like that have came out before uh, Brent was officially hired as the head coach, but uh, we talked about it a bit on last week's podcast that there were some recruits and uh, other players that were leaving Oklahoma, um, but it's become a flood. I mean, I swear every time I was looking yep. on the college football Reddit, it's like this five star is decommitting from Oklahoma. This player is transferring right. from Oklahoma. Um, right. So it- well, I, I feel like the Oklahoma players are really feeling like um, they were duped. Right. Mm-hmm. And and you are looking at a you are looking at a major culture shift between Lincoln Riley and Venables. And I think that the players feel like they were they were uh, somehow mistreated or duped by Riley. And I don't think they're all enthusiastic about Brent Venables. Because, again, I think they recognize the difference in the personalities of those two. Right. right? And so so they're in that difficult transition time. I, at some point, Brett will stabilize that. Uh, he's a very good recruiter. So once he gets his staff in place and stuff like that, 
probably some of those guys that are in the in the portal might have a chance to switch back. And even some of the guys who decommitted, if they don't quickly commit somewhere else, might be treading water and taking a wait and see, and then we'll get back in the fold with Oklahoma. We'll see how that all plays out. But there's definitely going to be a little bit of uh, transitional um, uh, difficulty for Oklahoma because of that. Yeah. From all the indications I've seen is that this uh, Lincoln Riley's changed the USC took everybody at Oklahoma by surprise. I even saw something on social media today where uh, on uh, USC's football, you know, Twitter page or whatever, it says something from Lincoln Riley. Like I want to make this place, the Mecca of football. And then some Oklahoma player commented, that's what he told us last week or something like that. So, <laughs> so the salt is very real, I think. Oh yes. Well, I, I, and I, that's what I mean. I, I think, I think, uh, you know, he's one of these guys that basically left in the middle of the night, right? Like he scooped and left town in darkness uh, kind of thing because he shocked everybody with that. And I suspect the athletic director didn't know that this was coming either. Um, uh, But like all good athletic directors and Oklahoma's athletic director has been one of the best. Uh, He had his list in his pocket. And so when that circumstance happened, uh, he was ready to go. I would say this. He wasn't surprised that Lincoln Riley left because Lincoln Riley was entertaining offers from the NFL pretty regularly for the last few years, right? Uh, when you coach basically like whatever it was, three Heisman Trophy winning quarterbacks in a row, you're going to get some positive attention. He thought he was going to lose him to an NFL team, which probably led him to believe that if that was going to happen, that wasn't going to happen until January right? or even February, right? So... um I think the timing is the part that maybe Joe wasn't ready for. Right. Cause it was like the day after the, the Oklahoma, Oklahoma state game, he was gone. Oh, that's right. It, yeah. It was a day after the Oklahoma, Oklahoma state game, not the conference championship. Right. Well, Cause they, Cause they were didn't in it. play in it. Yeah. They didn't play in it. Yeah. Yep, Cause they lost that game. So there exactly. You go. Wow. Um, and then we, crazy. Met, yeah, it is crazy. And we mentioned this earlier, but, um, uh, in Miami, um, they ended up firing their coach, Manny Diaz, after a 7-5 and five record this year, and they hired Mario Cristobal from Oregon. So that's why we were saying that those players may have known that their coach was leaving when they were playing that Pac-12 championship game and not giving it their all. Um, seems like an interesting choice because, you know, yeah. Oregon has been like okay the past few years right but they haven't been what they were under chip kelly right that is true but uh but they uh the thing with cristobal was he is a recruiting machine okay and oregon was kicking butt on the recruiting trail and just building a bunch of talent now he was showing himself to be only an average game day head coach at this point but when you have the ability to sell you know, your product, the way he could sell the product, the, the hope and expectation from Oregon administration and fans and everybody, and even the national media was that eventually all this talent that he's accumulating is going to start paying off for him. Right. Which is usually what happens in this day and age, man, you got to get talent. And that will be part of one of our future podcasts. When we talk about why is Alabama so successful? Hmm. Um, and we'll get into the whys on that, but, but, Cristobal was a great, great recruiter, and he immediately was paying dividends for them. And keep in mind that they were the um, um, 
they were in the mix last year. Did they not win the Big Ten championship? Or they were the best team, and then they lost in the championship game to Washington or something last year? Uh, In Um, the Pac-12, you mean? In the Pac-12, yep. I think that's the way that played out. But that Oregon was expected to be the the winner, but then lost unexpectedly in the championship. I, I don't remember all the details. Bottom line, though, is Oregon's talent infusion had, was already paying dividends in terms of them having good records and having a level of success. They were still being disappointing, uh, ultimately, because, again, that game day coaching wasn't there uh, at, uh, consistently enough. But but Cristobal, is, he's from Miami. That's his home. I, I don't know if he's a graduate of University of Miami, but he coached there previously. He's He understands the successful culture that it needs to be created if you're going to be a, a great success at Miami you've got to you've got to keep all those Miami South Florida kids at home at Miami and they have not been doing that under their last few head coaches mm-hmm. and so that's what Mario's going to go down there and try to do but I would totally agree with you that this is a strange choice by Cristobal I understand why Cristobal or why Miami went after him um but I don't understand why he would choose that if he understands everything that there is to understand about Miami and about Oregon. So there, there must be something more that I don't see because from the outside, he made a bad choice. Right. Miami is a, you know, athletic department that's really struggling. Uh, uh, not just from a performance standpoint, but from a money standpoint, they don't have the blank check of Nike like Oregon does. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, that's what I was thinking about. Cause like at Oregon, you've got you know all the all the little perks and the fancy uniforms and all the money coming in from Nike and everything, you know. So you're giving all that up if you're going to Miami. Exactly, and Miami's a small school. It's a private institution, very good school academically, uh, but um, they their facilities suck. I mean, they suck even by ACC standards or um, general power five standards, they suck. And compared to Oregon, it's night and day. So right. somebody has promised Cristobal a blank check, I believe. I mean, that that would be the only logical thing is that the athletic director at Miami has said, we are going to, we're going to give you everything you desire and we're going to spend whatever we got to spend to become great again. Uh, because that's what it's going to take in terms of reinvestment in their facilities and things of that nature, and then he's going to have to go out there and lock down the city of Miami and South Florida again, like it used to be back in the heyday of Miami hurricane right. football. Um, so last year they were four and two in the regular season. Um, they lost to Oregon State and Cal. Um, so you know, I don't, I don't know that they were competing for the the championship last year, but that was such a weird year. I'm I'm wrong about that. Maybe it was two years ago. Then it was it was pre COVID year. But anyway, um, I just felt like a lot of things from a recruiting standpoint had gone very well for Oregon. And they had a great recruiting class this year, Um, you know, one of the top recruiting classes in the country. So he had been doing phenomenal in recruiting. Right. And And, and you you mentioned before the podcast that one of the top choices, it seems like, to replace him at Oregon is the current coach of Baylor, who you were praising so highly earlier. Correct. Yeah, he's he's on the list, which he's on everybody's list at this point, right? Because of what he's done at Baylor and what he did before he was at Baylor. He was 
He has been a absolutely spectacular defensive coordinator at, at a number of top uh, colleges, Wisconsin, LSU, when they won the national title, he was the defensive coordinator for them. And then he got the Baylor job and he took a Baylor team that if you'll recall, was in the midst of controversy because their, their uh, coach had been um, uh, accused of, uh, you know, basically protecting uh, athletes who, who had been accused of rape and, and just all kinds of horrible things. Right. So you would have thought that, that that would have crushed Baylor's perception for a number of years, but he came in there and within a few years had turned that baby right back around and they were doing well and, you know, won a, won a big 12 championship already. Um, so he's phenomenal. He's one of the hottest commodities in the coaching market, if you ask me. Mm -hmm. um, so I guarantee you, uh, that Nike's going to throw some serious money. I mean, Oregon is going to throw <laughs> some serious money at him at, and he's going to have to decline it. Uh, basically, he's going to just have to say money's not the only thing that matters to me and I want to be at Baylor because I like where I'm at. Otherwise, he's likely going to be the next head coach. At, and that's that's too bad because I had some hopes that if, uh, if the Scott Frost one-year experiment fails, uh, that he was a guy that I would have put at the top of my list. And if we're going to get into the game at the $10,000 or $10 million a year kind of pay for coaches, if that's where we're headed, then I would want to throw that kind of money at a guy like him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Seems like a, a good uh, option, certainly of the, of the ones that are left out there right now that, you know, a lot of the bigger names, right? Like we were wondering where, what's going to happen with LSU, what's going to happen with Florida, what's going to happen with Oklahoma, right? Those have all filled in now. So now it's kind of right. the other teams are figuring things out now. Well, right. Well, and, and that's the thing is that, you know, interestingly, a lot of the hot, you know, every year there's hot uh, head coaches or hot assistant coaches, and then they have another year and maybe they don't do so well. Like, Campbell at Iowa State, who after you know the previous year, um, you know lots of people talking about him. People were still interested, but but they f and fell short. But in the meantime, Iowa State stepped up and you know renegotiated his contract. Same at Penn State, right? Their coach was in discussions uh, uh, about a lot of these open jobs, and and uh, Penn State threw some more money and extended his contract. Michigan State threw stupid money at their new coach to solidify him. So now you look at all these major programs, you know, uh, the good news is, is that that would, would lead you to believe that there's going to be stability among a lot of those top, top programs for the next few years, because they all have new coaches and they're going to give them all at least three or four years. Right. So maybe next year will be a, a better marketplace to be in for Nebraska. Oh, I definitely think so. I mean, it's rare to have so many top jobs opening up and to have the the people who get those jobs, right? The fact that USC stole Lincoln Riley away from Oklahoma, an Oklahoma that's been one of the top teams in the country year after year for the past, you know, 10 yeah, years crazy. or whatever, right? That yeah. that's that doesn't happen very often. No. And then Notre Dame coach leaving Notre Dame, not getting fired, purposely leaving Notre Dame to go coach at LSU. That is that is monumental uh, 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 description of the shift in college football. Mm -hmm. I mean, Notre Dame was the pinnacle of all jobs, right? Right, right. back mean, in the that day. That was the thing, right? And no one left Notre Dame. You were either asked to leave or you, or, or you retired or something. 
right? Or you got like, fired. <laughs> or you got fired, right. I mean, that is what did it, right? Um, but for for Brian to Brian Kelly to leave that job by choice to go to LSU says an enormity about where where Notre Dame is at right now and where the LSU where LSU's potential is right now. Yep. No, it's true. Um, there are plenty of rumors out there about our uh, new coaches, our offensive uh, replacements for our current coaches at Nebraska. Um, and we're expecting that by the time we do a podcast next week, we should have confirmation of a number of those people. Um, but we're going to save that discussion for next time when we have more concrete uh, names to go off of and speculation and all that fun stuff. Um, so the last thing we'll talk about today is some of the uh, transfers and uh, recruits and stuff that we've gotten here at Nebraska uh, after our final game of the season. And of course, the biggest news since last we talked is that Adrian Martinez, our four-time starting quarterback, is transferring away from Nebraska. Uh, the rumor is that he's going to go to Kansas State because that's where his current girlfriend is, who he's quite serious about. Um, but it does kind of solve one question we were wondering about last time, like how is that quarterback battle going to go right with, will Adrian stay another year? Will he go to the NFL? Uh, How will he, how that compete with Smothers and our other quarterbacks we have in our room. Um, But now we know for a fact that Martinez won't be there, which is it's, it's, it's weird. The feelings that elicited me, I felt, you know, bad because it's like, Oh, we're losing all that experience. And Adrian has been, you know, shown so much talent in his time at Nebraska. But at the same time, I'm also thinking, well, it gives some more, clarity on what's going to happen next year it's clear that like smothers has to compete and try to improve himself and be the top guy right he's got that mission now over the off season um and hopefully we'll get somebody who's more consistent than adrian proved to be so i was kind of mixed on it what was what was your first impression you know um my my uh, uh feelings were also mixed similar to yours but different for a different reason uh, at the, I mean, at the end of the day, I'm feeling like this is good for both. This is good for Adrian, for him to step away uh, and maybe go somewhere else. And it's good for Nebraska that he's not going to be at Nebraska. And that's because, you know, we've been there, done that with Adrian Martinez trying to be successful within Nebraska's offense. He He has had more than enough time to come up to speed and to use all that experience of all those quarterback snaps that he's taken, um, you know, and, and, and translate that into improved play and improved consistency. And he's never been able to demonstrate that. So uh, this is a great new opportunity for him where he can go to a school, hopefully that has a good fit for his skill set, um, And that maybe has an offense that isn't as complicated. It doesn't put quite as much, uh, wait on him to make every decision and to be the ultimate arbiter of whether the offense is, is effective or not. Um, you know, there are obviously a lot of different offensive systems and each one puts more or less on the quarterback and, and our offense, an enormous amount is put on the quarterback in terms of decision-making in terms of how they go is how the offense goes. Like back in the day for Nebraska, uh, when we had our old Tom Osborne system, that uh, we needed to have a good quarterback, but we could be incredibly good, even national championship good, with a guy 
that wasn't the best quarterback. He was simply a guy who could execute at a high level and let all the talent around him succeed. Does that make sense? Yep. Okay. So anyway, Adrian could maybe go somewhere that gives him that lesser requirement and be enormously successful because there's no doubting his effort, his uh, athleticism, phenomenal. But he's not an accurate passer, has never been an accurate passer. So unless that surgery that he just had on his shoulder magically makes him an accurate passer, he's probably going to continue to be an average passer. But that doesn't mean he can't be enormously successful in the right system. And then for Nebraska, the, the thing that I think is important is what you said about Smothers, but equally important is now we can go out and recruit, hopefully, multiple uh, portal quarterbacks that know they're coming into a Nebraska quarterback competition, not being guaranteed the spot, but also not having an, a, an entrenched starter that they have to overcome. You know, I believe it opens the door for Nebraska to ultimately get two, maybe even three quarterbacks out of the portal because our quarterback room isn't very deep right now. We have two scholarship quarterbacks, Smothers and our, our young freshman. That's it. Right. So we could easily get two or three more because we don't have a quarterback in this class. Um, so, um, well, we do, but he had a season-ending injury, right, early in his, in his high school senior season, and so he's done. Um, and uh, um, he may likely redshirt next year. So we can't, you know, we can't count on him being there like for spring ball or anything like that, which typically happens with quarterbacks. So you almost see him as a guy down the road, right? He's, he's longer term. So I could see us getting two or maybe even three. And I think that would have been very hard to get high quality options out of the portal if Adrian was still there. Mm-hmm. No, I, I definitely think Good that's... Good for both. Yeah, yeah. I think that's true. You know, at the end of the day, um, clearly... Uh, as much effort, like you said, as Adrian clearly did put into his time in Nebraska, um, it wasn't equating to wins, right? Um, so exactly. hopefully going a different direction with a new uh, offensive coaching staff, hopefully a new quarterbacks coach, all that sort of stuff, you know, will uh, shake things up enough that we get a different offensive result next year. Um, going with that, though, there were a few other uh, transfers of note um one was uh scott the third as it's marvin scott marvin scott marvin scott the third yep yep who who got a A running back right who got a solid number of uh uh runs this year as our as a running back you know one of the guys that we did rely on he's transferred as well as uh morrison right and and the thing is is that both of those guys were pretty talented running backs coming out of high school um but um Neither one of them was able to see any consistent um, time as our starter, right? They got in and spot played, and they both showed some talent. I, I mean, the thing was, our, our running back room was actually quite deep with talent, good talent. Not any one of them had emerged as the clear and obvious you know, leader, right, of the, of the pack. And that's why we had kind of the musical running backs. And... I think the other thing that's probably a little frustrating for those two players and why they left Nebraska was as much uh, about when they got their opportunities and how they got their opportunities as much as it was the number of opportunities. Um, Our 
running back rotation with, with our previous coach, uh, Ryan Held, who was uh, obviously a great guy. They all liked him a great deal. And he was, a, he's a great recruiter because he, he compiled some great talent, but he couldn't use it. And he always had the wrong guy in at the wrong time. It was amazing how badly he managed the uh, uh, player rotation during a game. Right. And that's a huge part of your job as a coach. Right. Well, and I would say, I mean, the, uh, the one who stood out overall on the year, right, was Johnson. Uh, but then he got hurt, you know, in one of the later games. He had to got that concussion well, that he had to sit out games for and all that and, stuff. And the, Bra- and the Nebraska fans would have said to you, Johnson's not the guy you go with. He's the wrong choice because his build was for him to be the changeup guy. Uh, you know, he has pretty darn good speed but he's he's thin and he does not have the shoulders and he's just not an every down guy in the big 10 in the rough and tumble where you got to go and you're going to be playing against defensive ends that are 290 or 300 pounds instead of defensive ends in the big 12 that are more like 255 okay just everything about the big 10 tends to be bigger and 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 you know it's a very physical physical league. And so you need running backs that are very physical. And, and over time, you know, we've observed that the great running backs from Ohio state and Wisconsin and uh, Michigan and you know all the places that consistently have great running backs in the big 10, they're not small guys. They're big guys. And there's a reason for that. Mm-hmm. And so this guy should have been a spot guy. He would, he should have been the change of pace guy for us from our regular every down guy. And we have a, uh, and, you know, Sevion and, and uh, uh, Marvin Scott were smaller guys, but short and stocky. They were of the build that could have been more of that power kind of uh, option. Uh, but it's going to be interesting to see because I'm concerned that we've got a couple of other players in that running back room that might also be uh, likely to leave. Right. And we could find ourselves very thin there. And that's why that that. Um, choice for replacing the running backs coach is going to be critical to that. Mm-hmm. That's definitely true. Um, one piece of good news I did see right before this podcast, I think this is recent news, but uh, apparently we just got a commitment from a five-star kicker named uh, Charlie Weinrich. Um, so that's that's good news for me because we definitely need yeah. some uh, some well, some we, good kicker blood. Sign, yeah, we need to sign every kicker who's good that we can find (laughs) (laughs) until we find one that actually is good. Yeah. But uh, the thing I I think I'll leave us on here is that um, we talked quite a bit during our podcast this season about how Scott did a good job of keeping the team together and still playing hard week after week, even though we had so many close crushing losses, you know, the morale of the team couldn't have been great, but he managed to get them to play hard pretty much week in and week out. Um, but it seems here at the end of the year with, you know, Scott's one year of time left, you know, to kind of prove himself and the changes in coaches, et cetera, et cetera. You know, it seems like some of these guys who you might have expected to kind of stick it out with him, you know, if he's really their coach, they really believe in. They're not doing that. They're transferring. They're going to the NFL early, et cetera, et cetera, uh, which is leaving us with a lot of room open for us to go to the transfer portal and get new people and to uh, sign some new scholarship uh, players for recruits for next year and all that sort of stuff. Um, 
So it's, it, you know, it, it's a little bit wor- of a worrying sign, but it's also an opportunity if Scott and this new coaching staff can capitalize on it in this new world of college football that we're in. I would agree uh, totally with your summary there, Alex. Um, the, it's the new reality, and we have to manage it very, very well. Uh, the good news is, is that because that new reality exists, it allows a team to to create a pretty quick flip on their talent and their depth uh, that didn't used to be a- available to you. But in Scott's situation, he's got a very heavy sale sell to do on all these guys. Not only the players that are on the team already to keep them there to 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 improve retention, but also to then fill in all the gaps that exist so that we can come out there next year with a team that has a legitimate chance to compete in the Big Ten West. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not foolish enough to think we're going to be a, a Big Ten contender, but I sure would like for us to be competitive enough that we as fans and they as players have at least the experience of being able to say, gee, you know, we're four weeks into our nine-week season in the Big Ten, and we're in this thing. Mm-hmm. You know, th- th- that's something our players haven't haven't been able to do, and that used to be an annual event. I mean, for for forty five years, that was every year, right. and uh, all the way to the end of the season. You know, it usually came down to the last game of the season or the second to the last game of the season that was the deciding factor for whether or not we were going to do big things or not. And now we haven't experienced that for twenty years, really. Uh, and uh, certainly not consistently. And so Scott needs to find a way to find consistency both in his new coaching hires, find consistency in both offense and defensive performance and special teams performance, and then he has to figure out a way to fill in all the gaps that are being created by departure um, so that his team actually has the talent to compete. Mm -hmm. Because, again, something we've said on this podcast many times, Alex, is the thing about the Big Ten is that the coaching is good enough and the talent level is distributed enough in the Big Ten for everyone except with the one exception of maybe Ohio State historically over these last decade is that if you have a weakness, if there's a clearly a position on your team where you just don't have enough talent or skill, the head coaches in the Big Ten are going to figure it out and they're going to expose the heck out of it. So Mm -hmm. you better be good everywhere. You better be sound at least sound everywhere. You don't have to have a superstar on every because nobody does except Ohio State and maybe Michigan and Penn State to some extent. But but you've got to be good. And uh, and we have not been. We have had individual areas of frightening weakness every year under Scott Frost. Mm-hmm. You know, this year it, it it was it was, you know, our specialists, our special teams areas. Uh and uh it was the fact that we did not have a backup quarterback that we trusted. So we were playing a guy who was eating through a straw. Yeah. I mean, you can't do that and win football games. No, it's true. Well, and 
for Scott, you know, since he knows, I mean, not to say that he, he can't just totally uh, abandon looking ahead to the future years, you know, planning for himself to continue being the head coach. But for him, he knows that next year is his year to prove himself. So, you know, if he gets in some, you know, transfer quarterback, right, from some other school that's already a senior, right, only has like one year of eligibility left, you know, that's okay for Scott, right? Because he's like, I just, I need one good year for sure. You know, that's, that's yes, what I got to plan exactly. on right now. And that's, and that's where I, I say, if, if I'm Scott, I am prepared to, to, to go after three quarterbacks. I want to give myself options. The three quarterbacks that I recruit, maybe one or two of them are graduate, right? They're, they're, they're getting they're they're one year hired guns. And then you have one guy that maybe is a transfer from the portal. That's maybe only a sophomore or something. And then, and then you've got, you're going to have your sophomore uh, smothers and you're going to have your, your true freshman who redshirted this year um, going into next season. And then you're going to have your, your true freshman coming in who can redshirt, but, but you would have a quarterback room with five or six arms, right? Live arms that you can choose from. Uh, you need that if you're Scott Frost um, and you'll worry about making that decision later after you see them all. But, right. but you, you darn well better use, uh, more scholarships than you probably are comfortable using on quarterbacks this year um, to make sure you have choices. Mm-hmm. That's true. All right. Well, this was a longer podcast, but we talked about a lot <laughs> of uh, different topics that we wanted to cover. And as we mentioned, we've got plenty to talk about in the off season. We'll be doing a podcast next week to go over the our predictions for the semifinal games as well as the big uh, bowl games. And... Uh, all that fun stuff, as well as hopefully official news on Nebraska's new coaching staff. Uh, still crossing our fingers for the special teams coach here at the Schmitz household. Yes, exactly. <laughs> See, yeah, you know, yep. You know, it, it is sounding like at least there is some possibility that uh, Billy Bush might still be in the running. That he hasn't completely rejected the idea. So we'll see. All right, we'll see. Uh, We'll see. And we'll see if what new coaching, you know, carousel chaos has happened in a week's time. Well, right. Because, because you still now have a great job, the Oregon job open and whoever gets that is probably not going to be a no name from no, nowhere university. It's going to be a major name. Like I, it wouldn't surprise me if a Dave Aranda who's probably getting paid, you know, $6 million a year at Baylor doesn't get offered $10 million a year to go to Oregon. And you know what? if someone nearly doubles your pay um, and, and offers you, you know, the kingdom that is Oregon football, that might be a tough play, a tough to turn down. Well, not, so, not to mention the fact that the big 12 is losing Texas and Oklahoma, right. You know, f- right. future wise, um, it, it, it's good from the perspective of like, you know, you might be have a better chance to win. Right. You might have a better chance to win the conference, but in terms of the money, you know, and everything else. So those are other aspects to consider for sure. I totally agree. Totally Uh, agree. Though you are going to, if you do that, you're going to a Pac-12 with a Lincoln Riley led USC, which is scary in its own right, too. (laughs) That that is true. But better to do that now than three years from now after Lincoln Riley has established himself. True. And and it might it might be quite interesting I mean, this Lincoln Riley experiment may not go as planned for USC because because of the way he left uh, Oklahoma. 
Um, he probably burnt some bridges. Oh, definitely. Um, and and not, I don't just mean um, with um, the players on the current Oklahoma team. I'm talking about uh, all the coaches in Texas that have been huge sources of multiple athletes for him over the years and have really liked him might view him differently now, right? So his ability to go back into his old stomping ground and recruit is going to be somewhat diminished, I believe, right? And then if once he gets out there in L.A., if he struggles a little bit and say an Oregon, which is already a little further along uh, talent-wise and everything, um, we're able to get his goat early, then then all of a sudden, you know, the luster is off the pig. And uh, and then the next time the NFL comes a call in for him, which uh, many people have said for a long time that Lincoln Riley is going to probably end up in the NFL because he's an NFL mind. He's a brilliant offensive coach. He's an NFL mind. And so um, that opportun- those opportunities won't stop coming his way, at least not in the next few years. So what happens three years in if he's not quite got it going at USC yet and the opportunity to, to coach the Las Vegas Raiders comes up? You know what I mean? Like all of a sudden that might look appealing to him where he doesn't have to deal with high school recruits who you now have to recruit continuously for five years. <laughs> you, you, you know, Very I mean, th- that whole job of being a head coach has become so much harder and how you're having to manage and keep all these kids happy with their NIL opportunity. I mean, Jesus, I, I would not want to be a head coach right now. It would suck. <laughs> Your life would suck. If you get paid a lot of money, you'd, you'd, you'd be getting paid, you know, generational money uh, for your family, but your life would be miserable. <laughs> yeah. It's almost like you, uh, you don't like dealing with college age kids, dad. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me, let me put it this way. If, if your goal is to use the sport of football to teach young men how to be better men, better adults and, and better fathers and, you know, and all that, all the, the great life lessons that this, this great sport of college football could teach you uh so much of that is gone now because now the tail is wagging the dog those kids control that coach far more than they ever did and to the point where now the coach has got to modify so much of his behavior so he's not able to do the things that led to the uh the personal growth of the athletes and i think that's going to expose itself in these next 10 years as this all plays out. I think we're going to discover that, that the athletes aren't quite the same as they used to be in terms of their maturation as they go through the college experience. That, that's going to be diminished because of what coaches can't do. The only exceptions to that will be coaches like Nick Saban, okay, who are able to have a level of success that they can demand the old school respect that um coaches used to get nick still gets that but he's one of a only a handful Mm -hmm. and uh, he's a he's a dying breed is what he is that's true that's true all right well if you all out there enjoyed listening to this podcast you can reach out to us if you search for uh college football throwdown on apple podcasts or spotify you can leave us a rating or review there let us know what you think of the podcast we'd appreciate that you can also find us at huskerpete13 at gmail.com. 
and leave us a comment if you want us to read it out on the air or a question or anything of that sort. We always love hearing from the fans. So thank you all out there for listening. And thank you, Dad, for joining me for this episode. And until next week, go Big Red. Go Big Red. Go Big Red.